All right, hello, Toll listeners. Kurt here. That silence is missed sales. Now, why? It's because you haven't met Shopify, at least until now. Now that's success. As sweet as a solved equation. Join me in trading that silence for success with Shopify. It's like some unified field theory of business. Whether you're a bedroom inventor or a global game changer, Shopify smooths your path. From a garage-based hobby to a bustling e-store, Shopify navigates all sales channels for you. With Shopify powering 10% of all U.S. e-commerce and fueling your ventures in over 170 countries, your business has global potential. And their stellar support is as dependable as a law of physics. So don't wait. Launch your business with Shopify. Shopify has award-winning service and has the internet's best converting checkout. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories. All lowercase, that's shopify.com slash theories. Professor Chomsky, you're a serious person. Most people know you as a serious man who has serious views on U.S. foreign policy and so on. I'm curious, what do you do to... Unwind. What makes you laugh? Do you watch The Simpsons, Rick and Morty? I can't say it, or my animals will race to the uh, exterior exit. (laughs) I'm curious about your views on consciousness. If you've ever had any experiences, whether it's with psychedelics or marijuana or an unconscionable amount of alcohol that is, or meditation that has changed your views on consciousness. Not part of my universe. I'm probably the only person you've ever spoken to who never used marijuana. So what do you think the function of consciousness is? It's uh, our window into the world and into ourselves. Very fragmentary. Most of what's going on in our mind is completely inaccessible to consciousness. Do you take a materialist standpoint, that is, that the world is made up of atoms and from that consciousness is an epiphenomenon, or do you see consciousness as foundational at some level ontologically? There is no clear notion of materialism, so it's impossible to answer. By materialism, we mean anything we more or less understand. And I'm curious to know what your views are on free will. Free will? Like 100% of other people, even those who deny it, I think I can decide right now whether to lift my finger up or down. Science tells us essentially nothing about this. It only tells us We can't incorporate it within our current understanding of science. Okay. So there's a certain sense that material reality uh, from some of the people that we've been speaking to is is, uh, secondary to that of consciousness. They think that it's the material that's more epiphenomenal. That's more of an epiphenomena as opposed to consciousness being something that's sparked from uh, the material world. And we were curious because we know you have more than kind of materialistic aspects or atheistic aspects in your thinking, um, if you thought there was something that was more uh, transcendent or if you think it's something more material, something more like it's just us on earth. And well, that discussion so- can only be pursued if you have some notion of what the material world is. So what is it? Actually, if you, if you look at the history, there was uh, a quite interesting debate about this several centuries ago. So the foundations of modern science, Galileo, Descartes, Newton, uh, Huygens, Leibniz, uh, the great scientists of the 17th century, uh, developed a concept of material world. Uh, The concept was called the mechanical philosophy. Philosophy meant science. So it's philosophy, mechanical science. The idea was that the world is a machine. It's like the complex artifacts that uh, uh, skilled artisans were producing and uh, spreading all around Europe. Uh, Mechanical clocks, uh, 
performances that looked like real actors, uh, uh, digestion of a duck, the uh, fountains at Versailles, they were all over the place, incredible uh, machines. And the assumption was, well, the world is just a bigger machine. Machine meant what it just, what it means to you and me. Uh, levers, gears, and things pushing and pulling each other and so on. And that was the reigning doctrine. Uh, the idea the Galileo and others uh, considered a, a theoretical account uh, not acceptable if it wasn't, if you couldn't construct a machine to duplicate it. Well, Newton came along and showed that there are no machines, none. Uh, he thought that was a total absurdity, spent the rest of his life trying to overcome it. Uh, his associate, uh, the other great scientists of the day, uh, Leibniz, uh, Huygens, others accused him of reinstituting occult ideas, uh, interaction without contact. He agreed. Uh, problem was never resolved. Science just abandoned the quest. They basically said, well, we'll just construct intelligible theories. Newton's theories were intelligible. The world he described wasn't intelligible, but they said, we'll forget it. Science lowered its goals. Now we just try to construct intelligible, intelligible theories. Whatever the theories tell us, that's the material world. So there's nothing to discuss. The material world keeps changing as we understand more. So the question whether something transcends the material world is just a way of saying we don't know how to incorporate it within our intelligible theories. Maybe we never will. Maybe someday we will. Does this mean that you also take an agnostic view when it comes to God? That is, who knows? When it comes to? God. God? I don't even know what I'm supposed, what I'm at, being asked about. Uh, what is it that I'm supposed to believe in or not believe in? If, if possible, then just to give you a certain dimension, uh, something to question, because we understand that the, the word, like a coin that's uh, lost its face and become nothing but sheer metal, loses its value, and to sort of put aside ambiguities, um, there's a certain move now towards understanding uh, or maybe even rediscovering the idea of God, not so much as a man in the sky, but you could, you could argue it's, it's the highest value as to how things should be and to the principles that we should abide by. Okay. Certainly in your life, you... Yeah, I certainly certain, think we can talk about the principles we should abide by. What do you find your most driving principle, just even if it's something personal in your own life experience what we all we all have principles uh, uh we don't want to torture children uh, we don't want to slaughter people we want to bring uh, justice and mercy to people who need it there's all kinds of values that we share nothing is added when we give them the name god or give them the name anything else sure we have values we can look into where these values originate, how they've developed over time. We can discuss and uh, debate how they can be sharpened and applied in particular circumstances. Uh, that's, what, uh, that's what we can do constantly. And nothing is added to this discussion. If we say there is a, an X, and I can't tell you what X is. I recall you said that there are no moral relativists. That is, people who can theorize about morals are relative, change from culture to culture, and therefore there is no overarching morality. They're just theorizing. They don't act like that in practice. Does this mean that you hold the view that there are objective morals? There are. As a matter, we are organic systems. We're not angels. Okay. We have internal, uh, cognitive, emotional, uh, moral, other structure. We can investigate what it is. You can't really go beyond it. You can say, here's our moral nature. We can try to refine it. We can sharpen it. We can carry out 
informed intelligent discussions to see if we can determine whether certain things conform to our concept of what is good or bad but if you ask how do i show that it's really good or bad it's a question that has you can't formulate it you can formulate the words but you have nothing to say about it it's like asking uh, we have certain modes of trying to understand the world uh, we have certain ways of investigating, uh, analyzing results, uh, making conjectures, uh, confirming, disconfirming them. If somebody comes along and says, how do you know those are the right ways? It's not a meaningful question. By what standard do we discuss, discover whether they're the right ways? Since there are no standards proposed, the question is just empty words. So there's many different ways that we arrive to an understanding of uh, truth. There are different epistemologies that we use. Um, some are respected, as you mentioned, more than others. Amongst these tools, uh, some cling towards tradition, either in the form of respected mythologies, which they believe um, either fundamentally or allegorically or somewhere in between. And my question for you is just in your own development, uh, in your own education as, as you advanced, uh, what was your view towards these mythologies, these sort of founding uh, either religious myths or mythologies in other cultures? Did you ever have a fascination with mythology? Was it just regarded as superstition? My own history, which is of no interest to anybody but me, uh, up until the time I was about maybe 11 or 12 years old, I accepted the religious beliefs of the culture that I grew up in, intensive Hebrew education culture. I didn't seriously question it. Uh, by the time I was a young teenager, I realized that none of this makes any sense. So I just abandoned it. And since if other people, I know it, I'm not telling other people to give up their beliefs. It means a lot to them improves their life, it's fine, doesn't, none of my business. As long as they don't interfere with others, uh, people can have whatever beliefs they like. But there's, there's no way I should share them. For sure. Uh, many find that this transition from the superstitious beliefs of their, of their upbringing to something either more allegorical, maybe possibly still religious, or something more um, atheistic and, and in this sense, we mean uh, material devoid of any superstition. That transition often occurs in adolescence, I would say. And it impacts people when, they, when they're growing up. Did, did this transition for you uh, impact you? Did you find that it changed the way you viewed the world? Or was it something more negligible? Scarcely. Actually, the religion, I was not, I mean, I was brought up the I was brought up in an intensive Jewish culture, but Judaism is more a culture of uh, practice than belief. Like my grandfather was an extremely orthodox Jew, super orthodox. Uh, grew up and lived in Eastern European Jewish communities, practically medieval in character. If I had asked him, do you believe in God? he probably wouldn't have known what I was talking about. The religion is doing all these things. Uh, that, get up in the morning, perform the rituals, go to the shul, pray with your friend, come back. Uh, he was uh, what's called a mashkiach, uh, a person who uh, supervises uh, butcher shops to make sure that they're kosher. So go around to the busher shops, do all the job, then go to the afternoon prayers and do the other things. That's that's religion, okay? I mean, okay for him, not for me. That if you want a personal experience, there was one that gave me an insight into the nature of religion. Uh, we've, if you don't mind, a personal story. Please share. We'd, we'd love that. Yeah, we would absolutely love that. <laughs> well. Uh, we visited, my, my family lived in Philadelphia, 
My father's family, which was extremely orthodox, lived in Baltimore. And we would go to Baltimore for the holidays just to visit. And I remember when I was maybe 10 or 11 years old, uh, we were visiting on Pesach, Passover. And uh, I noticed that my grandfather was uh, smoking. So I asked my father, how can he be smoking? I knew the Talmudic law, which says uh, there's no difference between uh, the holidays and the Sabbath, except with regard to eating. So on the holidays, you're allowed to cook a dinner. You can't do that on, on Sabbath. So my father said, well, he just decided that smoking is a kind of eating. And then I did get an insight. Religion is based on the assumption that God is an idiot, that you can fool God very easily. And if you think about it, it's true. Nobody can live up to the prescriptions that are told. So everybody finds ways around them. Actually, Pascal, I later learned, had a wonderful uh, passage about that in the City of God on the Jesuits and how they find ways to give interpretations that are the opposite of what the text says and they live by the interpretations and that's correct i mean it's if you think about it it's completely impossible to live up to the uh, uh, prescriptions well the catholics have a way out of this you go to confession every whenever periodically and you tell the priest all the terrible things he did and he says, fine, you're okay. Uh, Jews, it's a little harder. You have to wait once a year, the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and you say all the things he did, make them up if there weren't any. I mean, I have Catholic friends who, who tell me that when they were kids and went to confession, they couldn't think of anything to say. So they had to make something up, you know, and, took a toy from my little sister or something like that. But uh, every religious faith has some means to avoid uh, keeping to the letter of the prescriptions. So, okay, essentially it means they're based on the assumption that you can get around God's prescriptions by one or another device. And that, that was an insight, I have to say. <laughs> So you mentioned the uh, Talmud, and there's a, I believe there's a scene where uh, the spirit of Moses comes back and he sees a bunch of rabbinical scholars, and they're, they're analyzing a text, and God brings Moses there. Moses looks at the scholars and he goes, what the, what's happening? I, I didn't tell them any of this. And the, and God, you know, kind of gives a bit of a shrug, like, well, now you know like how it feels. And um, so that, that idea that there's this movement away from uh, either the foundational belief or that things become a farce, right, is a theme, I think, even within those religious traditions. Um, what fascinates me and what I'm curious of in yourself is um, what you see reflected in those traditions, either in terms of their utility or the potentials in human beings that they uh, espouse to? And do you think those are reachable? Or do you find things that are admirable? What is your sort of goal morally? It's something that just interests me if you could touch on. Well, if you take um, the religious faiths that exist, uh, they can, they're all interpreted. And nothing takes literally the words of the holy text. So, for example, in the Jewish tradition, the huge uh, rabbinic, uh, Talmudic, later rabbinic tradition is, if you, which I did study when I was growing up, is just ways of interpreting the uh, texts so that they become feasible for ordinary life. Okay, so you, and the same is true in the, uh, in the Christian tradition, the interpretive tradition modifies and uh, reshapes the words to fit uh, a possible existence in the culture in which it was done. And it can be done in various ways. So you can have uh, 
One of the most dramatic examples in recent years is uh, what happened with uh, Pope John the 23rd uh, calling Vatican II, Second Vatican Council, uh, 1962, which tried to revise the Catholic tradition that went back to the fourth century. The fourth century, the Emperor Constantine uh, adopted Christianity as the uh, official religion of the Roman Empire. Uh, the cross, which had been a symbol of human suffering, was put on the shields of the Roman legions. Uh, Hans Kuhn, the great historian of Christianity, uh, describes this as a change from uh, the church becoming the church of the persecuted to the church of the persecutors. And it pretty much remained like that, if you look at the history, until Vatican II, when Pope John urged that the church uh, return to the Gospels. That's pretty radical. The Gospels have a radical pacifist message. And it was taken seriously, especially in Latin America. Uh, bishops, uh, priests, uh, nuns, uh, sisters, lay people went out to peasant communities, tried to organize them, get them to read the Gospels to understand the preferential option for the poor, which is the lesson of the Gospels, take it into their own hands, try to reconstruct their own lives and communities to overcome the terrible repression in which most of them suffered. That was liberation theology. The United States went to war to destroy it, and did. That's why there were so many religious martyrs in the following decades. Furthermore, interestingly, the US government takes pride in that. If you look at the School of the Americas, it's since been renamed because it got a bad reputation, but the School of Americas, which trains Latin American officers, mainly the killers in the uh, national security states, violent states that the US imposed and supported through the region, they have advertising points, talking points. One of them is the US Army helped defeat liberation theology. So we beat back this effort to reconstitute the Gospels successfully, and we take pride in it, okay? But that's one of the things that could come out of religion, going back to the original texts and seeing what they meant. And it can be a very radical message. Uh, that's frightening. Uh, you may recall uh, there's even literary uh, exemplifications of this. Uh, Dostoevsky's great uh, passages on the Grand Inquisitor, for example. We, we know the fellow, uh, Alexander uh, Christianopoulos, who is going back to the Gospels and looking at them through uh, what he considers to be a, Christ, a Christian anarchist lens. Um, and the conclusion kind of comes to is this pacifism that he would find that would resonate with fellows like Tolstoy. And you look at these um, Christian anarchists, Tolstoy, Ivan Illich, and they, they tend to come up with these rather interesting responses to our contemporary problems, uh, particularly to neoliberalism is something that interests us. Do you think that the answers that these Christian anarchists like uh, Illich, like uh, Dorothy Day, give to our contemporary situation could be helpful. What do you think is the good we could take? What do you think we could throw away? My own feeling is that the most important messages are those taken up by the activists in Latin America who took seriously the injunction to return to the preferential option to the poor, of, for the poor and tried to apply it in practice. So people like, uh, most of them martyred, uh, Rutilio Grande, uh, Archbishop Romero, the, the Father Ea Correa, 
All of these people were trying to do it in a concrete way. I don't care much what people were saying. They were doing it. That's why they got killed. Given the various perspectives on neoliberalism and its origins, where would you locate the institutions, the, inst the institutional centers of neoliberalism? Corporate sector. It's uh, the corporate sector worked in the business world in general, worked very hard through the 1970s to reverse the uh, civilizing effects of the 1960s, the democratizing effects. They're very explicit about it. If you look at the Howell Memorandum or on the liberal side, the Trilateral Commission's uh, crisis of democracy, they were deeply concerned about the, the entry into the political arena of uh, sectors of the population that are supposed to be passive and obedient, uh, not interfering with uh, uh, the rights of the powerful to run the world. Uh, it was showing up in things like uh, even militant strike actions like Lordstown, where young workers were not just asking for better wages, but asking for some control of the workplace, uh, reduction of the rate of profit. Uh, the uh, liberal side, the trilateral report, uh, warned against the failures of what they called the institutions responsible for the indoctrination of the young. Schools, colleges, churches are not indoctrinating the young properly. That's why you have these demonstrations in the streets. That's why you have people protesting against the war, against sex. Sorry to interrupt. You said they're not indoctrinating the young properly. That to me sounds like there's a proper way of indoctrinating the young, which sounds like you don't hold a negative view towards indoctrination per the, se. I'm speaking about the liberal side of the spectrum. There is a spectrum of opinion. At the right, you have things like the Powell Memorandum uh, handed to the business community through the Chamber of Commerce saying, we have the money, we have the force, we have to fight back to beat back all these threats to the business world and business rule. Very straight. Then you have the liberal side at the opposite end. Now, the best exposition of it is the first, actually the major publication of the Trilateral Commission. Liberal internationalists from the United States, Europe and Japan, uh, basically the Carter administration, they were drawn from its ranks. There, it's the, I'm quoting from them, they were condemning the universities and the schools for their failure, the failures of indoctrination of the young. Proper indoctrination means return the general population to passivity, obedience, what they called more moderation in democracy. So don't press for your demands. Uh, just take it easy, go back and stay where you belong. Uh, we'll take care of things. Okay, that's the liberal side. Uh, the harsher side is uh, expressed, for example, in the Powell Memorandum. Uh, these are just exemplifications of developments that were taking place in documents. But the idea was to reverse the new, basically New Deal programs that persisted through the 50s and the 60s were even extended, reverse them, return to where things ought to be with power in the hands of private power. That's where decisions ought to be. Private, unaccountable power. That's neoliberalism. It was made explicit by Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, who sort of escalated it all almost as soon as they took office. So Reagan's inaugural speech said, uh, the government is the problem, not the solution, which means take decisions away from government. He didn't say this, but government has a flaw. It's partially influenced by people. So take decisions away from government, take initiatives away from government, put them in the hands of private power which is totally unaccountable to the population, totally.
and to drive it home, they had an economics guru, Milton Friedman, who came out with the since reigning doctrine that the sole uh, responsibility of corporate leaders is to maximize profit for shareholders and themselves, of course, the sole and only goal. Okay, and then uh, laws were changed, the regulations were changed to implement this, you go on into the neoliberal world with perfectly predictable consequences, uh, sharply concentrated wealth. Uh, so the, right now, for example, about 20% uh, of the country's wealth is in the hands of 0.1%, one-tenth of 1% 1 of the population, twice what it was when Reagan came in. Uh, for most of the population, uh, it's basically stagnation. People try to get by from paycheck to paycheck. It's, uh, you know, it's claimed that unemployment was low, but that's highly misleading. And for one thing, it doesn't take into account people who just dropped out of the workforce in desperation. Count them in labor participation measures. Turns out that unemployment is more like 7%. And even that's misleading because it doesn't deal with the fact that the new employment that's come under Obama continued more or less under Trump, not quite as well, but more or less, uh, is mostly precarious work. There's a good solid jobs. It's uh, you know it's the kind of job where maybe your employer will call you to come for the midnight shift. You know. There's a sense that one of the crises of neoliberal ideology is the fact that it um, restricts this human potential. I, I'd imagine there'd be more who have a job but do not feel that they would be living up their true potential. Uh, working sort of mindlessly or numbingly at uh, an occupation that they would rather avoid but feel more or less cornered into. Another thing is, as you talk about the government's or about the private sector's role, but how deeply do you feel that, how deeply do you feel that government has been sort of integrated with this private sector? Who's, who's running the government here? And if it's not the people, if it's these corporations, how do we, how do we fight back? How do we circumnavigate this system? Well, first of all, if you, I don't know if you want to go into it, but having a job is not an ideal. In fact, having a job is a, a severe attack on human rights and human dignity. We can go into that if we want, but it's now you know, what's called conventional common sense these days, not not in the 19th century. When but you say today, having a job is, is deleterious, you mean to say that needing to have a job is not, not ideal having, or even having a job at all? Having a job. Having a job means placing yourself under the control of an autocratic uh, ruler uh, for most of your waking life. An autocratic ruler has the kind of control over you that uh, Stalin never dreamt of. Like Stalin never thought he could tell people you're allowed to go to the bathroom for five minutes at three o'clock, you know, or you have to wear these clothes and not some other clothes, or you have to race if you're from this spot in the warehouse to the other spot in the warehouse by a path, right? laid out for you. And if you go a little bit to the side, you get a noticing, you get a demerit. Now, Stalin didn't do that. But that's having a job. Uh, 19th century workers regarded that as a fundamental assault on human rights and human dignity. Uh, the Republican Party agreed. Uh, one of the uh, platforms of the Republican Party is that wage labor is no different from slavery, except that it's temporary until you have a chance to become a free person again. Now that's the 19th century, uh, goes back millennia. The idea of being dependent on another person is a fundamental attack on dignity. And having a job means that's most of your waking hours. Uh, it took a long time to beat this into people's heads and make them think that 
that's the goal in life. Okay, there's a lot to unravel about that. And I think it can be done. But if to go back to the narrower question, uh, how do we get government to be more responsive? We know the means for that. You can do that through the political system. It's often been done. Activism has done it uh, all the time. Uh, take the New Deal, uh, we, uh, I mean, which I'm old enough to remember. From the Depression hit in 1929, much worse than today. It, uh, most of my family was involved, unemployed, first-generation uh, working class. They uh, took a couple of years before things began to pick up by about 1934, 1935. The labor movement was picking up. It had been almost completely crushed in the 1920s. Uh, it started getting CIO organizing, militant strikes, leftist political parties, a lot of activism, fairly sympathetic administration moved on to give you the New Deal measures that have greatly improved life for a great mass of the population that we still uh, there's efforts since the Second World War, particularly to chip away at them, to beat them back. And neoliberalism is another effort to beat them back. But to the extent that they still exist, yes, they make life much more tolerable. Uh, the same is true now. Take a look at what's going on in the Democratic Party. Uh, they have been forced to the left by the Sanders movement, by continuing popular activism, uh, the D, there's a battle going on. The DNC, the Clintonite donor-oriented, basically conservative part of the party, which uh, runs the, uh, manages the party. They're trying to prevent the programs that would move to the left. And there's a struggle going on. Uh, if the activists continue at it, they can continue to shift the party's programs. They can develop new parties, uh, other forms of activism. Now, all of these options are open. Now, we don't live in a brutal dictatorship where uh, the dissidence means you're sent to the gulag. There's plenty of, plenty of repression, wouldn't deny that, but it's nothing at all like really repressive states. We have a very great range of freedom, opportunity. We can do things to through the political system or through modifications of the political system or alternatives to the political system to change the nature of the society. Speaking of freedom, democracy, John Dewey, the pragmatist, was like, education, what's important for it is democracy. I'm curious, what do you see that we can do to democratize education or to make education more democratic? In addition, we know you went to what you described as a Deweyite school. Do you mind explaining that experience? One thing we can do is to reverse what's been happening through the neoliberal years. One part of the neoliberal programs has been to undermine and destroy the public sector. That includes public schools, includes state colleges, so state uh, funding for the schools has declined. Uh, funding for state colleges has sharply declined. Uh, the uh, a business model has been imposed in the colleges in which you try to maximize profit and reduce uh, what's called uh, waste. So instead of having uh, uh, senior faculty teaching courses, which is expensive, I hand them over to adjuncts who you don't have to pay anything, pay practically nothing. They have no means of protecting themselves. They're basically gig economy, uh, graduate students and so on. And, uh, but simply defund. The public schools are vastly defunded. Purpose is clear. When you defund the public institution, it means it doesn't work properly. Uh, parents get upset. They don't like it. They want something else. You can drive them into the private sector. Okay, we have to reverse that. And then after you reverse that and develop 
decent schooling, then we should move on to what you just described, using the uh, methods that are understood to and sometimes applied to enhance and develop creativity, independence of mind, uh, uh, mutual participation, uh, all the things that happened in a well-run Deweyite school, as I happen to personally know, happened to from nursery school up to high school, that's where it was, can be done very effectively. So what you've described seems to be the crisis of neoliberalism and education. Would you, do you agree with that? In, in part? I wouldn't call it a, I think it's a, it's one of the crises that follows from the neoliberal program of undermining the public sector in which people participate and which is responsive to them to undermine that and turn everything over to the to private power which is unaccountable to the public in the curious uh, rhetoric of today that's called libertarian it's a remarkable turn of phrase uh, libertarian means put your lives in the hands of complete totalitarians. That's libertarian. It's an interesting usage. Of course, you can understand the rationale. So Thatcher, Reagan, throw people into the market, destroy unions, destroy means of association. Uh, you're alone in the market. Uh, if you can survive, okay. If you can kick your the guy next to you in the face and get ahead, fine. Uh, do what you can to maximize your own power and rule. Now that's the principle, and it's understood. Like if you read the uh, the, the th big thinkers, the leading thinkers of the so-called libertarian movement in the United States, you know, people like James Buchanan, Nobel laureate. And Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Economics, one of the major uh, uh, thinkers of the movement, highly respected, did important economic work work in economics. Now he describes his position, explicit, is uh, the economy should be designed so as to accord with human nature, which makes good sense. Then what is human nature? He tells us the human nature is such that each person, each person's highest ideal is to live ruling a world of slaves. In case you didn't notice, that's your highest ideal, to live ruling a world of slaves. That's the highest doctrine of libertarian theory. And so when you're in the market, you try to do whatever you can to approximate that position. If you happen to lose out, it's your problem. Razor blades are like diving boards. 
The longer the board, the more the wobble, the more the wobble, the more nicks, cuts, scrapes. A bad shave isn't a blade problem, it's an extension problem. Henson is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer that's made parts for the International Space Station and the Mars rover. Now they're bringing that precision engineering to your shaving experience. By using aerospace-grade CNC machines, Henson makes razors that extend less than the thickness of a human hair. The razor also has built-in channels that evacuates hair and cream, which make clogging virtually impossible. Henson Shaving wants to produce the best razors, not the best razor business. So that means no plastics, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades, and no planned obsolescence. It's also extremely affordable. The Henson razor works with the standard dual edge blades that give you that old school shave with the benefits of this new school tech. It's time to say no to subscriptions and yes to a razor that'll last you a lifetime. Visit hensonshaving.com everything. If you use that code, you'll get two years worth of blades for free. Just make sure to add them to the cart. Plus 100 free blades when you head to H-E-N-S-O-N-S-H-A-V-I-N-G dot com slash everything and use the code everything. So there's an evolutionary biologist by the name of Peter Gray who argues a very different understanding of human nature. Uh, He works with the Evolution Institute, which has uh, espoused the philosophy of Christian anarchists like Fyodor Kropotkin and their mutualist, their their mutualistic understandings of human nature. That in evolution, there's a force that shapes our humanity, our evolution of bonding with others, helping others out. Anyway, Peter Gray has looked at uh, the, our evolutionary history when it comes to learning. You could argue sort of learning instinct and seeing how that is unleashed in schools versus how that's unleashed in more democratic, more sort of unstructured play-based schools like Sudbury Valley School. Do you believe that the schools that we have now um, unleash that learning instinct or run counter to it? And what would be the best way to sort of unleash this learning instinct in our schools? Just to, uh, model, to uh, fix up the history a little bit. Now, this goes back to Kropotkin, his uh, mutual aid, a factor in evolution. Shortly, he was a naturalist. Uh, as soon as Darwin's work came out, uh, Kropotkin pretty soon published this book arguing that a major factor in evolution was simply mutual aid. He gave many examples in the animal world and in the human world. And that's opposite to the reigning interpretation Herbert Spencer made famous about it's just survival of the fittest. You know, you get as much as you can. Now, the fact of the matter is we know virtually nothing about human nature from a scientific point of view. So these proposals are saying, here are the assets. Human nature includes both. Whatever humans do, that's part of human nature. Okay. So there are various tendencies in human nature. There are probably some people who aren't totally appalled by James Buchanan's conception uh, that what we want is to rule over a world of slaves. Somebody like Adam Smith would have regarded that as pathological. Uh, But there are people who accept it and believe it. There are people who uh, prefer the picture that Kropotkin, others developed, that the parts of human nature we should foster and develop are those that turn towards mutual aid and support. Uh, You can see it constantly, right in front of us every minute. So for example, right now, uh, there's uh, an, an effort to deal with the raging pandemic. One way, the James Buchanan way, is illustrated primarily by the Trump administration. They're not alone, but they're extreme. If we can get a vaccine, let's get it for ourselves. Screw the rest of the world, okay? Because we want it. Uh, In fact, Trump just, there is an international consortium working on developing a vaccine, which will be a cooperative effort to develop, which of course is more efficient than local efforts. Uh, uh, 
some measures to try to distribute it to the poor. Trump just pulled out of it. And we don't want to have anything to do with these uh, mutual aid, mutual support things. We're out for ourselves, okay? And that means the rich and the powerful, not the poor among us. So that's one extreme. The other extreme you see on the streets all over the place, uh, mutual support groups are spontaneously developing in poor neighborhoods and crime-ridden neighborhoods, all sorts of places all around the world to help out people who are in trouble and to try to inf see if you can do something to bring a possibility of surviving the pandemic in places where people don't even have water, let alone the possibility of isolation. So those are two aspects of human nature. The question is, which ones do we want to work and foster? Okay, that's the choice. It's not a matter of science telling us what human nature is. It doesn't. It just says, these are various manifestations of human nature. From there on, we go to decide what we want to do. What the schools are doing in recent years is training for obedience and passivity. That's called teaching to test the worst possible mode of education. Now, we all know it from our own experience. I'm sure you've had the same experience I've had many times. You take a course because you're forced to take it. You're not interested in it. You want to do well, so you study for the final exam. You get an A. And two weeks later, you forgot what the course is about. Okay. How many times has that happened? We all know that. That's teaching to test. Uh, turns you into a passive automaton, follows orders. Don't follow your... I mean, I've had... I talk a fair amount to teachers. I've, I hear things from teachers, like a sixth grade teacher told me in one meeting that in Massachusetts, a liberal state, that uh, uh, she was giving a section on something in class and a little girl came up to her after class and said she was interested in, in pursuing one of the things that the teacher had brought up. So could she suggest something she could look at? She had to tell the kid you can't do it. You have to study for the MCAS, you know, the test, because your future will depend on it. And though the teacher didn't say it, my future will depend on it. Because if you don't get a high grade, I get a demerit. So you can't pursue what you're interested in and try to uh, develop your creativity, your inventiveness, uh, uh, work with other students in the class to develop. But you can't do that. You've got to uh, memorize what comes up in the test, pass the test, two weeks later forget what it was about, but now you're a passive obedient individual. That's called teaching to test, okay? Right, yeah. I heard you say that one of your favorite courses was Real Variables, where the teacher just wrote a theorem or a possible theorem on the board and said, you figure out whether or not this is a mathematical theorem. Have you heard of the concept of unschooling or de-schooling, and if so, what are your thoughts on it? That's Illich. I mean, I can understand his motivation, but I don't think it's the right solution. Uh, the right solution is not de-schooling, but rather turning schooling into a creative experience which develops the child's abilities, capacities, uh, abilities to work with others, and so on. I mean, as I said, I went to a Dewey 8 school till high school. Uh, all I wanted to do in the morning is get to school. It was the greatest experience. When I got to high school, an academic high school for kids who are college-oriented, the city's top high school, it's the opposite. It was a burden. I had to go there and get all A's and hated it and couldn't stand it, tried to do my own things on the side. Okay but I was able to get a scholarship to college, okay. In fact, until I got to high school, I literally didn't know I was a good student. It never came up. The years I was in school prior to high school, everybody was encouraged to do their best. Actually, I realized later, hadn't thought about it at the time, that I'd been skipped a year. So one year I was in a different class, older class. 
Nobody paid any attention. I didn't notice it. Nobody else noticed it. And the only thing it was was new classmates and I'm the smallest kid in the class. It's about the only thing I noticed. But it, it was just nothing. As soon as you get to high school, you're ranked. Are you first? Are you second? Did you get an A plus? Uh, you know, some, every, in fact, I, I saw with my own children in a liberal professional Boston suburb community. By the time they were in third grade, they were talking about the smart kids and the stupid kids, okay, because of the tracking that was done. That's outrageous, you know. And that's the liberal side, okay. I'm not talking about, uh, you know, un underfunded inner city schools. These are the best schools around. Okay, that's a way to destroy children, to turn them into passive automata. By no means has to be done. And it's not always done. I mean, there are teachers who struggle against it, do very well, have uh, creative programs, kids learn from them, they grow and develop from them. So it can be done, but it's not the way the system is designed. You have to kind of fight against it. This seems to be something more in the structure of our schools as opposed to the funding. Uh, this desire to assess, uh, rank, have a certificate. Um, if there were different institutions that gave certificates, would we not, or wouldn't we see like a diversification of these assessment structures have more room for creativity? Plenty of ways to do it. I mean, and they're very good teachers who do it and do very well. But the system is stacked against them. It's uh, just as the college system is stacked against constructive work. When the state defunds state colleges, which it's doing under the neoliberal period drastically, okay, I'm now teaching in a state college for the first time, sharply defunded, what can you do? You don't have a lot of choices. You have to raise tuition. You have to attract uh, foreign students who'll pay full tuition. You have to transfer, you have to transfer classes to uh, adjuncts. Uh, you don't have a lot of choices. You can fight against it and do the best you can, but the policies from the federal government on down, and this was true right through the Obama period as well, are to are designed to turn to, to undercut uh, the kind of educational programs which would be very successful. Now, I don't want to exaggerate. There are very good programs being developed, particularly in science education. So a lot of very good scientists, in fact, the scientific institutions, the main ones, uh, are American Academy, you know, Association for Advancement of Science and others, are developing very good curricula on science education. We had time, I could talk about them, but there isn't time. Which do, from the kindergarten level up through high schools, do a really good job on developing uh, creativity, ingenuity, of learning how to solve problems, uh, learning how to work with others, very well done. So it can be done, but you're fighting against strong institutional pressures, okay? And uh, we can overcome that by changing the institutional pressures. My question for you, and it relates to this, what I would call the crisis of uh, neoliberalism in education, is uh, Betsy Davos, who's favored charter schools. Uh, these are charter schools are something that have taken off in the United States, while here in Canada there's only 13 in Alberta or something near there. What are your thoughts on? charter schools, voucher systems. Is this something that Canadians should adopt as an alternative to have more of a diversity of education or more of a diversity of educational instructions? Or is this something that should be warded away like a plague? What's your stance on this? Well, it's a mixed story. Suppose you're a black mother in a poor community where the schools have been defunded so they don't work. Uh, 
teachers has a 50 students in the class and half of them didn't have breakfast and places. The main goal in the class is to keep the kids quiet. And you don't want your child to be in that class. And there's a rich charter school down the street, you know, privately funded, nice facilities and so on. So you want your kid to go to the charter school. That's very understandable. But at the next lower level, right in the background, is the fact that this is a way to destroy the public school system. The right response to that defunded school in your neighborhood is to fund it, to reduce the classes to a reasonable size, to make it possible to have free breakfast for the kids. And that's the way to deal with it. Not, not to say, let's throw out the public system and have a privatized system, which of course draws from public funding. So it reduces the funding for public schools. So from the point of view of that mother, I can understand her decisions. If it was my kid, I'd probably do the same thing. But we should recognize that it's part of a system designed to destroy us, to destroy the public institutions in which the society can thrive and turn them over to private hands where you'll be under control. So yes, that's the decision as an individual you may make, understandably, as I say, I'd probably do the same thing, but recognizing that it's part of a very destructive development. To close, there's obviously deleterious aspects to being too close-minded as well as being homogeneous, that is uniform. Do you happen to see any flaws to being on the flip side? Is there such a thing as too much openness or too much diversity or even too much equality? And if so, what's an example of that? Yeah, things can go overboard, but that's not the problem. I mean, it's like, uh, say, take the Black Lives Matters protests, which is a huge, incredible development, the biggest social movement in American history huge number of people involved, spontaneously, solidarity, black and white, working together, constructive goals, developed good programs, uh, really great things happening. Enormous support from the population, about two thirds support, there's never been anything like that. At the fringes, uh, there are people who are breaking windows, uh, uh, intimidating somebody in a restaurant, that's what the focus is on. Let's take a look at the fringe and talk about how bad it is. Okay. Yeah, it is bad. Things like that shouldn't be happening. But that's not what's going on. What's going on is a massive, nonviolent, constructive social movement. Same is true of what you're talking about. You can find people who push diversity beyond reasonable limits, okay, at the fringe. But the call for concern for people's various ways of choosing a lifestyle, that makes sense. And that's the main thrust. So take any movement you want, you can find the same thing. And you can understand very well why the, the major institutions want to focus on the fringe. In fact, President Trump is building his entire campaign on it. That's all he has left. Can't no, no, no positive proposals that you can offer the population. Can't come to the population and say, uh, I'm responsible for killing 150,000 of you, so vote for me. You can't say that um, or any of the other things. So what you say is uh, radical anarchists are taking over the society and going to destroy your life and uh, you know, take away uh, your family and everything else. Okay, so the fringe offers the right wing a great gift, wonderful gift, but we should be serious and take a look at the major things that are happening, discounting and correcting the things at the periphery. I'm curious, you know, you said in the 70s and the 80s that you were afraid of possibly getting killed from the government or being imprisoned. That was Why? Sorry? Okay, in the 60s, cool. Why do you think that didn't happen? 
because of something called the Tet Offensive. The Tet Offensive in uh, South Vietnam uh, brought about a major change in government policy. Shift, it made the government realize they're not going to be able to win this war by force. They've got to move towards some sort of diplomatic settlement. It took years, millions of people were killed, but they began to move towards some way to get out. One of the things they did was try to, uh, cons to, try to uh, make basically conciliate the growing anti-war movement to try to dampen it down, saying we're your friends, you know, we're all on the same side. A lot of efforts to do that. But one of the ways was to cancel the trials. I mean, I was coming up for trial, but the trials were canceled. I appreciate that. There's only one audience question and then it's, you can answer it super quick. Hardly asks, in the past, you said that US administrations for a long period were guilty of war crimes. Would you lay such claims against the current administration? Sure. Just, uh, I think today or yesterday, uh, figures came out about the uh, bombing in Afghanistan and the uh, assessment of civilian casualties. Take a look at the figures. They're on the papers yesterday or today. Uh, the bombings of, under Trump have gone way up. Uh, assessment of casualties has gone way down. They don't look for them anymore. Civilian casualties, that is. Okay, that's a war crime. It's the least of it, by far the least of it. The worst crime that Trump has committed and is committing day after day is working with dedication and fervor to destroy the prospects for organized human life on earth. That's what it means to press harder, to maximize the use of fossil fuels, open up new reserves for drilling, cut back on the regulations that somewhat mitigate the coming catastrophe. Alone in the world, Trump is racing towards environmental catastrophe, which will come if we continue on this course and not in the distant future. Now, maybe that's not called a crime in the criminal system, but in any moral system that we can even talk about with a straight face, that's an incomparable crime. There is no criminal in human history who's been doing that. Not Hitler, not Genghis Khan, not anyone.